immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. This is our first interview after a long summer break. It feels really good to be back. It's good to be here. Let's get started. Chris, can you please introduce yourself fully and tell our guests about what you do and a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Chris Pike um, and my job is as a lead research and development engineer at the BBC. I work in the um, department research and development there and uh, I work in their immersive and interactive content team where I specialize in the audio side, but we uh, generally do all things interactive and immersive. Yeah, I think that covers it. We're definitely going to go back and talk about your role at BBC in greater detail. Um, Can you tell me how did you get interested in audio and uh, how did you get started in industry? Sure, yeah. Um, I think my interest started from playing guitars as a teenager, um, I was in various bands, punk bands and things, playing horrible little pub venues. And then we decided we wanted to record an album, but never had really enough money to use a recording studio. Um, and we got into home recording. So that's kind of how I started, kind of piecing together bits of software and hardware to record. Um, we, we actually recorded our album in a caravan on my bandmate's farm and sort of built a studio in there one summer. So that was the starting point. And then uh, I decided when I went to university that I kind of wanted to do, to make use of this hobby that I loved uh, and mix it with some, what your parents would call a proper job uh, or something that would lead to a proper job. So I did an engineering degree at York, um, but with music technology systems, which allowed me to play and have fun. Uh, so that was really great, um, you know, a formative experience um, for many reasons, but uh, that was my route into my career where I, I joined the BBC on their graduate scheme, um, what was called a trainee technologist scheme at the time. So I think my degree set me up quite well for that. And then I went through the BBC's uh, rigorous training program, which involved a three-month stint at uh, a very remote hotel in um, Middle England, which was quite fun. And then kind of went from there. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Essex uh, to the northeast of London. Um, so, yeah, it was quite well placed, um, not too far from Cambridge and not too far from London. And whilst my village was a bit quiet, there was a train station so I could get away for adventures quite easily. Chris, can we talk about your role as a lead R&D engineer uh, at BBC? Uh, what are your main responsibilities and what is your usual day like, if if there is one at all? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure there is uh, a usual day. It's quite varied, which which I like. But um, so as a, as a lead, I, um, I work with a team of very talented people. Um, so I'm kind of responsible for sort of the people management stuff, but also a bit of strategic responsibility for an area of work. 
Um, so our team involves various skill sets like software developers, um, signal processing engineers, user experience research, sound engineering, that kind of thing. And I'm responsible for kind of bringing that all together and managing the projects and the strategy and doing bits and pieces of all of those roles at the same time. So it might involve some coding someday, um, working with production teams to do testing of new equipment or techniques or developing a pilot with a new concept or format. Um, we do listening experiments with sort of formal ones with listening experts and also sort of audience tests or user tests. Um, and kind of sometimes we do workshops as well to explore ideas in a bit more of an open way. Um, and then the really fun stuff, I do some international standards work. So we go to meetings in places like Geneva in dark basements where we talk about specifications and stuff. But um, recently those have all been happening online, which is quite nice. Um, yeah, and apart from apart from that stuff, we do a lot of collaborating. So uh, a big part of the role is working with academic partners, but also industry partners. Um, I think the BBC Research and Development Department has a kind of function to to keep the BBC at the forefront of of what it's doing, but also to kind of contribute to the uh, technology creative economy. Um, so we do a lot of partnership and try and make things we do open and where possible. BBC being the publicly funded organization, how strongly do you believe that the work you do today will have an impact on how we consume and appreciate the immersive media in the UK and perhaps beyond, which is developing rapidly and inevitably will become a standard in the coming years? Yeah, it's a good question. I think... Um, you know, I, I don't want to pretend that we're more important than we are in a way. There's When the BBC started, um, there wasn't really a technology industry or a broadcast industry. It was inventing it as it went. And so the researchers at that point really were defining everything as they went. And I think today we're in a much different situation where we're, we're part of a big ecosystem and we're working with experts from all kinds of areas. But... Um, you know, the BBC still has a huge recognition, a huge kind of cultural weight, um, importance in society, which, um, is a real privilege to be part of. And, and that does mean that the work we do gets noticed and gets listened to, which is, is great. Um, if a little intimidating at times. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that, that the things we do will get picked up, but I, I know that we won't be doing that alone. So if we work on an interesting idea nowadays, a, a, a common approach is to kind of to talk about it through blogs and papers and demonstrators and then try and build like a, we use this phrase community of practice to um, share the ideas and get kind of interesting input from other people, whether technology companies or creators to, to help advance it. Um, but you know, then we also need to make sure that it works in favour of the BBC, which is when that's when we bring in standardisation or uh, work on kind of open source software libraries that people use, things like that. Can you tell me about Audio Research Partnership? So, uh, 
Yeah, the BBC Audio Research Partnership is kind of a uh, almost a brand name that we've used for um, the academic partnerships that we uh, we run. So it it launched about well nearly ten years ago now. So in two thousand and eleven, and we'd always had um, different partnerships with universities here and there to do collaborative projects, but we kind of wanted to you know, to take a bit of a strategic um, leap forward and and kind of build some buzz around it. So we spoke to a few universities and we built this kind of coalition of particularly UK universities that were expert in audio and acoustics research and developed a kind of strategy paper about the themes of research we were interested in. And then through a series of events um, and kind of workshops and things, we we sort of developed this these sets of projects that we did with different universities. Um, so we worked with, initially it was Salford, Southampton, uh, Surrey, Queen Mary in London and York. Um, and we've got kind of strong partnerships with all five of those, but it's not exclusive to them by any means. Let's talk about the project. I'm sure you've done a whole ton of things over the years. Um, let's talk about some of the more higher profile and kind of more significant projects from research standpoint. We can mention S3A Spatial Audio Project, The Turning Forest, Bjork's Songlines and the Art Album, Doctor Who in Binaural Audio, you name it. Great. So um, maybe I'll start with the S3A Spatial Audio Project then. Um so this is an example of our BBC Audio Research Partnership coming together, and it's probably the biggest and um, one of the most successful parts, although there were lots of successes. So this, is a, this was a five-year uh, collaborative project that we did with three universities, and they all start with the letter S, which helped form the name. So we've got Surrey, Southampton, and Salford. Um, and the whole purpose was really to, to look at 3D audio and try and advance the uh, the technology and the the concepts to make it um, ready for kind of mass audience um, acceptance. And I think um, there was a huge transition in spatial audio over the course of those five years. Um, not by any means exclusively because of S3A, but I like to think we contributed to to progress. Um, so it was a really big project. Um, we had, I can't remember the exact numbers, but we had um, a team of around 20 researchers, postdocs and PhDs um, working at the different universities, um, as well as the senior academics at the, the universities, all kind of picking apart the whole production chain of spatial audio. So from capture, um, uh, so we we were looking specifically at uh, a kind of object-based approach to spatial audio. So how do you analyze your recordings and pick apart the, the components to give you maximum flexibility? Um, so capture, you know, we looked at um, source separation, um, microphone array technology, that kind of thing. Um, then there's the kind of production techniques of uh, building in object-based audio and the rendering, of course. So, so how do you take a, a scene representation and, and render it for 
speakers and headphones um, in ways that are practical for the end user. There were lots of avenues to the work. And um, for example, um, the guys at the University of Southampton did some great stuff with um, line arrays of speakers. So basically like a sound bar that can track where the listener is and beamform to their ears wherever they are, um, which is is a great way to to do things. But the other approach, which links to what you were saying, is what we've called uh, device orchestration. So when we started the project, spatial audio, you know, you had binaural with headphones, which is great. But the other spatial audio stuff used arrays of many loudspeakers, and they were often um, quite you know, expensive and rigged in careful positions. And that's quite impractical for users at home. So we looked at um, a different approach, thinking that many people, not everyone, but lots of people have an array of devices in their homes that have speakers in and are often connected to the internet. And um, so we thought if you just relax your goal a bit and, and acknowledge that you might not get perfect level alignment and time alignment and you know frequency response between your drivers what can you do with this array of speakers that's distributed around your house and so we built this system uh, through s3a and then in the years since where um we kind of you know we synchronize these various speakers which might be your mobile phone and your laptop and your tv um, and then sort of distribute the sound objects around so you can build this kind of ad hoc immersive audio system from what you have. Um, and it's when you first hear it, it's amazing how compelling and immersive it can be, given that these are often quite small drivers that you're, you're using. And I don't think it'll ever replace the hi-fi experience, but it's something very different and really interesting to us. That's very interesting. But in kind of super basic practical terms, if I had a Sonos speaker and I had a, a mini OK Google and the soundbar next to my TV in the same room, how do I go about connecting it all together, if it's possible at this level at all? Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure we're completely there with those kind of, um, with every smart speaker system. So we initially focused on things that have a, sort of standard web browser interface. Um, and with those, say you go on your laptop, you go to a an orchestrated experience and you, you can choose to create a new session. And that'll give you uh, a short numerical code and a QR code that you can use to give to other um, people or devices that will connect to that session. So you might take your mobile phone and scan the code and then that'll connect in another web browser on that device to the same session. And then the system will know that you've got multiple devices in the system. And uh, we're doing some work to to try and um, improve that experience for sort of joining a session and looking at how you can do that on Chromecast and on various other things. But um, there are always um, slight wrinkles to iron out, I guess, in, in working with those systems and their APIs. But um that's not really a, a fundamental problem. It's just um, kind of working with people and uh, to explain the concepts and try and make this stuff available. But I think it's very possible to do that. It, as always, it sounds a lot more simple than it is. Uh, but essentially, it's it's about 
having some kind of master device that can receive, detect the presence of the speakers and receive the signal, then kind of hijack the data stream and then tell it what to do. And in this case, send the audio signal back to be played across all devices simultaneously. Yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. Although it's perhaps not as um, kind of master, or you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily the primary device and the other devices. So there's a a cloud synchronization system which helps to identify the clock on each device and and align them, and then um, it kind of pulls down the sounds it needs and plays them. Um, yeah, so it's it's a fairly distributed system. Um, and yeah, one that initially we used to create immersive experiences. Um, so the first one we launched was called the Vostok K incident, which was done under S3A. And that's a sort of sci-fi drama that you you experience in your room. Um, you can get these kind of uh, jets and, and there's like an, a dogfight in, in these planes and you get these jets flying by through the room across these devices. I encourage people to, to look up the project website because there's a huge array of interesting publications and at the end of the project, we did some kind of short talks that are all on YouTube for people to get a, a quick summary of some of the really interesting bits of research that happened. Um, we've also, through the project, released some uh, tools and plugins, which I think are really valuable, as well as some data sets. So maybe if I could just kind of mention a few of those things. So um, there's... There's a tool called uh, Visor, which stands for Versatile Interactive Scene Renderer. Um, a bit of a mouthful, but but that's a really useful open source toolkit for uh, spatial audio research and, and particularly object-based spatial audio. So it allows people to test new algorithms and to easily build their own uh, audio workstation plugins or Max patches or MATLAB um, functions um building on top of some very well engineered stuff um and we found that a really powerful tool for future research um there's a kind of plugin suite that comes with that to show object-based audio production which is um all freely available and we also produced a set of um three audio dramas in object-based audio um which are available as a data set with these plugins so you can kind of try that out and get an impression for you know what it's like to make this stuff and um and you can work with that and render it and it's a, i think it should be a, a valuable tool for either researchers or for uh, people trying to kind of get their head around spatial audio and what you can do with it um and maybe as well as those things it, it would be nice just to mention some one one or two bits of work that I think are really interesting. So we've done um, with some people at the University of Surrey, there was some great work on um, modeling the acoustics of spaces. Um, so from measuring, measuring impulse responses and also from 360 video footage, um, sort of analyze the, the geometry of the scene and the pattern of acoustic reflections and the reverberant character and then use that to drive your kind of VR content. So modeled your your room, your real room rather than a computer generated space, um, which is really important for a content maker like the BBC because we want to, we, we are often 
capturing events in real spaces as much as you know, more than, say, a game developer is, where they're completely generated spaces. And so um, for us, that research is really valuable and we're kind of taking that forward. So looking at things like uh, light field video and um, the the kind of uh, six degree of freedom audio representations that go with it um, in, in current projects. So Chris, can you talk a little bit about um, the logic behind these projects? Who decides what is the, the topic? What is the objective for the research? Essentially, how do you curate your objectives as a whole? That's a very good question. Um, and one which I guess as my career has developed, I've had to think more about getting into the sort of more strategic management area. Um, so I'd say it, it's a complex and varied pattern of um, influences, but you know, mainly at the BBC, we are thinking about um, the the kind of core principles of what the BBC is there for, which are very well defined. You know, there's a royal charter that sets the um, the reasons the BBC exists, and so and there's there's a paragraph in there that's all about what the R and D department does. So we have this kind of remit to to serve the public in these certain ways, um, and then we we sort of define we get kind of defined strategic objectives at the business level. So, um, you know, the R&D department has these high-level strategies um, and we use this model called objectives and key results, which is quite common, I think, in in the industry. So you, you set um, some high-level objectives, which might be sort of long-term ambitious goals. And then on a quarterly basis, you set, uh, measurable key result targets that you will use to step towards your bigger objective, um, which has proven a really useful structure actually for us. So um, at the moment, I'm leading our XR audio tools uh, project um, and we feed into um, a wider strand of work on um sort of new content experiences, we call it. So um, we set our goals on our specific area and then we have several review meetings with our peers and then with the sort of senior managers who take responsibility for the, the portfolio of work that is on new content experiences. Um, so there's this kind of hierarchy of review and goal setting, which um, if done right is really valuable. Um, and I think we're constantly improving at it. It's, uh, it's never, it, it's never perfect, but, um, I think having a structure in place that's fairly light touch, but, um, gives you feedback and allows you to challenge yourself is, uh, it's very effective. And when it comes to a specific project, like, um, uh, for example, using, binaural sound on an episode of Doctor Who, which is a project we did a few years ago. Um, it, it varies. So it might be that that comes from the producers of the program who said, oh, we've heard about this work and we'd like to try it out. Um, or it might be driven by us having a goal where we say, um, you know, we, we want to see what the audience response in this demographic is to this new uh, experience or technology 
Um, so we seek out a partner and, and we'll set some research goals. So we'll we'll put it out to the public. We might also run a, a survey or some kind of focus group user evaluations where we get more specific feedback. My top-up question to this was the relationship between yourselves and academic institutions, and you already mentioned a number of those. Can you talk a little bit about how the synergy happens, how the project ideas come about, who initiates ideas, who picks it up, who does majority of research? Again, it's quite a mixed picture how we handle these partnerships. Um, so when when the audio research partnership kicked off in 2011, um, we, we had this kind of strategy paper which outlined um, some key themes that we were interested in. So uh, that, that covered um, spatial audio, um, personalization, um, speech recognition, source separation, and semantic analysis of, of audio. So some broad themes that were generally popular at the time, but we saw how they could fit into the work we do. And um, through some kind of events that we ran, uh, inviting academics and people from across the BBC and the industry, we sort of tried to, I guess, to to raise awareness with with these academics partners or potential partners of the the challenges that we faced in research. Um, and then it, it kind of, it's been about relationship building and I suppose raising awareness of our own, um, our function and, and trying to build a reputation that means people are interested in collaborating with us. And I think that's been a real success over uh, nearly the last decade. Um, and, and then in terms of specific projects and how they get going, there's there's a mix of ways that happens. Sometimes, sometimes our uh, colleagues at the universities will approach us with a, a really good idea and um, we'll have to kind of weigh up how much that fits with our strategic objectives and how much we um, are able to to contribute effort towards it. Um, other times it might be us that sets the challenge and invites people to discussion. And um, these things can take quite a long time to form sometimes. So you'll have documents and, and meetings and calls flying back and forth over maybe 18 months before you're ready to submit a bid. And in other times it can be a funding body announces a call for a certain theme and um, someone in our partnerships team will raise the awareness and we'll just have to pounce really quickly and pull things together. So um, it's really varied, but um, we try and kind of maintain a balance of, of the themes that fit in our strategy and uh, pick uh, partners that we know have the skills in this area or, or we've worked with successfully in the past. Um, and, you know, that the, the scale of the projects varies from perhaps a master's student and a PhD project to something like S3A or a, an EU-funded project, which might involve 25 researchers or working from different organisations. So it's a real mixed bag, always, always interesting. Let's talk about some creative stuff and let's talk about music. I know you have worked on um, a very high-profile artist project, Bjork and um, it was one of those very few projects that were kind of designed to go mainstream and involved spatial audio within the context of music why don't you tell us more about it yeah sure yeah so it was a, a very exciting thing to be part of um, 
uh, you know, Bjork was, was one of my favorite artists growing up. So it was, um, pretty great to be involved. Um, so we, I worked as a consultant, um, with various other people to create, um, to contribute to two projects. So one, uh, was the audio guide at Bjork's, um, retrospective exhibition at the Museum Modern Art Museum of Modern Art in New York, uh, which was in 2015. Um, and we wanted to create something which was a bit more interesting than, than your standard museum audio guide. And it ended up being um, essentially an immersive audio augmented reality guide. So um, for the attendee to the exhibition, you would walk through this kind of maze of um, different chambers that corresponded to the different albums of Bjork's career. And there were lots of um, artifacts from those times, whether um, outfits she'd worn or uh, things from music videos. Um, and alongside that was this kind of creative audio narrative, which um, was a sort of poetic representation of Bjork's career and um, written by a poet friend of hers called Sion. And we made this, built this system which um, used interactive spatial audio. So it ran on a, an, an iPod um, and it used um, a Bluetooth head tracker um, called a Rondo Motion. And then around this museum space, there were these Bluetooth beacons, which we used then to kind of triangulate the location of the listener in the space. Um, so a bit like a GPS system, but um, as you'll know, that doesn't really work very well indoors and isn't very precise. So we tried to get something that's a little more precise. And then you had this kind of uh, musical, it, it was one part music, one part um, sort of spoken word. And, and then it was mixed in with a lot of um, natural sound, uh, field recordings um, from Iceland that had been made by Chris Watson, the wildlife recordist. Um, so it was a really fascinating project and uh, it done in an incredibly short amount of time given the nature of what it was and that very few tools really existed. So we worked with a, a little known company called Two Big Ears, which was subsequently acquired by Facebook and is now their audio 360 uh, product. So Varun Nair, um, worked on the project with me. Um, and then there was a, a studio um, from Stuttgart called Klangerfinder, which is like a sound design studio, um, as well as some um, engineers, uh, sound designers from the UK, Tony Chanside and Eloise Whitmore, who we worked with. So a huge team of people really to make this um, project, which was, was uh, a really great experience. And so you kind of, you transitioned through these rooms and you had a, an ambisonic soundscape around you. Um, and as you got closer to certain objects, you heard extra sounds that kind of uh, were mixed into the scene. Um, and you, you sort of had this non-linear narrative as well, because it, it stretched out for a certain amount of time for say, I don't know, the album Vespertine. And then when you moved through to the next space um it would kind of transition smoothly into the subsequent album and the, the sound world that represented that so uh lots of interesting challenges things that i 
look at in my uh, day-to-day work at the BBC, these kind of uh, non-linear narratives and interactive audio systems. Um, And we tried to piece together an experience like that for the uh, museum visitors, which um, hopefully enhanced their experience. Chris, how and when did you get involved with the EBU group on immersive audio? So I I started working with the EBU, which is the European Broadcasting Union, um, in 2013. Um, So the EBU is a kind of coalition of European broadcasters. um, And the whole remit is about kind of sharing information and working together um, to help drive the industry. Um, And the, the... the audio systems group has kind of been looking at immersive audio since around then in 2013. Um, And so my initial involvement was around a kind of workshop on binaural audio. Um, We uh, pulled together some of the kind of leading researchers from across Europe and had a a great workshop session with them. Um, And then I was invited to chair the immersive audio group for a while. I, after a few years, I sort of stepped back from that, but I'm still involved as an advisor to the the chair of the audio systems group. And um, there's some really important work that we're involved in um, around this um, concept of next generation audio, which is an industry phrase that kind of covers audio personalization and spatial audio um, through the use of objects. Um, so through that, we've been helping to set standards and um, kind of uh, make open source software releases, share tools, run listening tests, that kind of activity. Probably most of our listeners are familiar with the EBU through loudness standards set in Europe. But obviously, that's not the only component of audio that this group is involved with. And you mentioned that you're currently involved with very important work um, in relation to spatial audio and potentially how... Um, immersive audio is being created and consumed in the future. Could you just open up a curtain a little bit and tell us what's potentially on the horizon? Yeah, sure. No, I think we we aim to be very open about it because our, our goal is to, to sort of steer the industry to common approaches. Um, just on the loudness stuff, because um, it's kind of related, I, I started my career at the BBC working on the loudness standards and designing um, sort of test signals for people developing loudness meters to use, which was quite fun. And now we're we're doing some work on um, how the the loudness standards apply to 3D audio and especially object-based audio where the user might be able to adjust the level of the dialogue, for example. Um, You know, you still need to have some ability to predict the change in loudness that that might have. Um, But... Broadly, this next generation audio term that I described is uh, what we're working on. So there's a, a generation of uh, audio codec systems that's coming through that will enable delivery of 3D audio, um, but also um, keeping the elements of the mix separate so that you can do stuff like uh, boost the dialogue level relative to everything else or switch the dialogue to a different language or um, even perhaps in your uh, your sports viewing in lockdown, you might have the artificial crowd signal that you can turn on and off according to preference. Um, so so that's the kind of the phase of things that, that is hopefully coming to um, 
broadcast audiences in in relatively near future. Um, but there are competing technologies for delivering it. So um, the usual audio codec players like Dolby, uh, uh, MPEG with Fraunhofer being a major um, player in that, and also DTS, they all have um, next generation audio or NGA codec offerings. And so through the EBU, we're attempting to um, to kind of standardize this process and make sure that broadcasters are able to produce in open formats and then decide, you know, which of these codec solutions they're going to use to deliver to the, in the various ways broadcasters do nowadays, whether, you know, over the internet to mobile users or um, maybe even over broadcast. Um, and so that's the kind of the area we're working in and, and a big component of what we're doing in the EBU is based on this open uh, data model called the audio definition model, which allows you to define all sorts of audio formats. So ambisonics and um, 22.2 channel-based 3D audio and plain old stereo and binaural. There, there's kind of data that then describes what all of your audio tracks in your master file mean and, and how they can be used to make the program. Um, so we've We've been developing those standards over many years and working with these codec manufacturers to ensure compatibility and build it into the, the tool chain. And we've had a lot of good progress in the in the recent years. So um, I think in Pro Tools now, you can export to the ADM um, metadata model within a, a broadcast wave file, um, also in Nuendo. So it's starting to appear and we're continuing to work to kind of standardize that process and make sure there's sort of consistency because ultimately broadcasters need to to have their archive available and they need to be able to exchange programs with each other and um, it's valuable to have that done using an open format that's not using some commercial systems the commercial systems have their place but we just need to sort of standardize things as much as we can in the production area and the EBU isn't a standardization body itself but it uh, publishes guidelines and recommendations and sometimes those are then adopted as standards in other bodies like the ITU or maybe the SMPTE SMPT. um, but you know that has to be done uh, in a coalition with the industry uh, companies and the EBU works closely with those as a, a strong dialogue and um yeah, we, we kind of, the EBU represents the interests of the broadcasters, but um, recognizes the interests of the commercial sector as well. And we kind of work together to find things that um, work for everyone. So I know you've recently completed a PhD program at the Audio Lab at University of York. It's bloody hard work, isn't it? It is very. I've only just recovered one year later. <laughs> I can only imagine. But before we dive into this uh, in more detail and talk about your thesis, what, what does it mean doing a PhD these days? Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think doing a PhD can differ depending on where you are. And so I did mine, um, you know, it was quite applied. I was studying part-time whilst doing my um, my day job at the BBC. So that probably gives it a different flavour to someone who might just be in the lab at the university but yeah I, I'm sure there are lots of similarities as well you know you're you're focusing on a single strand of work and and 
through the process aiming to become a an expert in that rather narrow area and uh, contribute something novel and valuable to the field uh, field of knowledge there so uh, it can be a long winding process um, kind of exploring your way and finding your your path through it but I think most people find by the end you know they're really up and running and enthusiastic about what they're doing but it can be a real roller coaster ride along the way of uh, you know moments of complete despair and disillusionment followed by another period of thinking you're about to change the world and then you probably end up falling somewhere in the middle but being sort of quietly satisfied with doing your little bit I think that probably sums it up. Chris let's talk about your thesis Um, I'm gonna make a quick quote here from your research paper this thesis studies binaural sound reproduction from both a technical and a perceptual perspectives with the aim of improving the headphone listening experience for entertainment media audiences that's a mouthful and it's just one of the many things that I've picked out from the summary. Um, how about you tell us what you did? Um, it had a number of components, and can you take us through your key questions and findings? Yeah, sure. Um, I hope I can do it justice. It's a sort of intense process, writing it all up, and then you kind of put it in a draw and <laughs> forget about it a bit. Um, I think my my interest at approaching the project came from, um, so I, I did this over the course of just over six years, um, starting in 2012, really. Um, and at that point, uh, it was already well underway, but people were using headphones much more uh, and consuming audio uh, on the move, thanks to you know mobile data connections and things like um, the the BBC iPlayer and, and other similar offerings from other people. Um, and I I was aware of binaural technology from my degree, um, and so there was a, a real opportunity I think for looking at you know how can you improve the the listening experience for all those people listening on headphones. Um, I guess listeners to this podcast don't really need telling, but your stereo listening experience is designed for a, a soundstage on between the speakers in front of you, essentially, and you don't fully get that when you put your headphones on. Um, and so, you know, with binaural, you, you have the capability to, to create a full 3D sound world for the listener. And I, I wanted to explore whether someone like the BBC can make use of that technology and, and improve the experience and that so in the broadest sense that's what it was about um and uh so it, the the kind of process i went through was really exploring what is the state of the art of this technology and how you know the different techniques people use which have been developing for for decades um and and the other side was you know what is the listening experience how how do we measure and understand the what people hear and how that affects them um and both of those areas are constantly developing our understanding and the techniques we use and um i don't really claim to have have been sort of at the very forefront of either of them but i'm trying was trying to bridge the the gap between the two so get get 
really into the depths of binaural rendering techniques and uh, quality of experience evaluation, as it's called, and um, sort of look at the interaction between them so that we could ask some some questions like, you know, can binaural rendering um, create a really convincing spatial impression for a listener? Um, can that improve their listening experience? Um, and, you know, how how do the production techniques and rendering techniques you use influence that? Those are the core things I wanted to ask. And I also wanted to look at, um, you know, how, how is that achievable on a mass scale where you might not have perfect control over the environment because a lot of the really great research looks at lab conditions where you can carefully measure HRTFs and uh, headphone transfer functions and compensate for everything really well. Um, and kind of in informal experience, I have observed that you can get really compelling effects with with binaural processing, even without some of those techniques, but, you know, it can also fall down. So uh, it was just kind of digging into that space, really. Um, and to do that, I... I built a kind of binaural rendering system. So kind of, you know, getting into C++ code and, and core algorithms and um, allowing you to create this kind of object-based rendering of scenes and using using binaural processing as well as sort of antisonics and um, sort of virtual loudspeaker channel formats uh, as intermediate steps and um, then exploring how you you know, how that affects the, um, the experience that people have. And um, I guess the, the, one of the um, things I was really lucky to have as a PhD student was access to sound designers and, and engineers working at the BBC on really high-end professional programmes that they could use my tools and make, um, make content with them that could then be um, put on online and made available to the British public and I could incorporate them into uh, the evaluation process as well as those professionals who could give the kind of um, critical ear on things. So, you know, I set out to take advantage of those things that I was very lucky to have at my disposal. Those who would like to learn more about Chris's research, uh, we'll make sure to include a link in the podcast show notes. Well, besides the core research what have you learned personally whilst doing your doctorate? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, a lot, I guess. It, it's a it's a real arduous journey to do a PhD. And um, I'd say thinking about one thing in great depth for um, six years, in my case, is not a natural thing to do. And it, it can, um, can send you slightly... Um, under at times. So, um, yeah, I, I went through it a lot and, um, learned a lot about, about project management and about note taking and planning uh, along the way. So if I had to kind of think of some advice, I guess it would be that, you know, when you're doing a PhD or a deep piece of research, you need to make clear plans and structure what you're doing but be flexible because you need to be able to change and, and to respond to what you learn. And as you're going through things 
and you, you're constantly having to make decisions based on the evidence that you see, whether that's from the literature or things you find out as you code stuff up and listen. And so the important thing is to, to document when you learn things and when you make decisions, because you're constantly second guessing yourself because you know that in the end you have to stand up to peer review in your Viva and your publications. So when you've justified your decisions on in your logbook you can always look back and remember oh yeah that's that's why I decided to do this thing and that really helps um I learned that difficult things take time and that's okay we live in quite a fast-paced world where we're constantly on social media and replying to emails and things and a PhD is really the antithesis to that um and that's a really valuable experience to go through um helps you approach life I think knowing that you've taken this sort of glacial pace to really getting into something in depth. Um, and maybe the final thing I learned um, would be that collaboration is more fun than working on your own. Um, a PhD involves a lot of solo work and coming out of the PhD and, and working more with other people has been great. And to be honest, the, the bits of my PhD where I was working in collaboration, although sort of having a defined bit that was my contribution. Those were more fun. So um, that might not be the case for everyone, but for me, I need need to bounce off other people, I think. I know that you guys always thinking about your next idea, next project. Uh, I'm curious to hear whether or not have recent events and quarantine limitations inspired any new research ideas to meet any specific needs that have come as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, um, it's only natural, isn't it, that in response to such a seismic change in our way of life, you you think about what you're doing and reflect on it in in that uh, context. Um, I wouldn't say we've changed fundamentally, um, but I think that's because we, you know, we think our our long-term strategy is still useful in in this context. And we hope like everyone else that this will not last forever. Um, Although as you go through it, the the sort of timescales you're thinking of keep shifting. Um, But there's, there's some examples of of things that have changed. Um, So I mentioned this audio orchestration idea that we developed initially on the S3A, S3A project. And, um, that we we've recently uh, launched a a tool a production tool called Audio Orchestrator which people can try and download um, thanks to to great work by my colleagues um, led by John Frankham Christian Henschel worked on that uh, among others um, and and th- with that we took a bit of a, a shift in perspective during early days of lockdown because. Um, you know, it was thought of as a way to create an immersive audio experience in a certain space using the devices you have, um, which it works really well for. But uh, the same technology can be used for synchronous distributed experiences. So you can have, for example, um, people in their own homes experiencing a single event, maybe a live lounge music performance or something. um, and, And they can all potentially hear slightly different versions. Maybe the live lounge example isn't that great, but it might be um, 
a, a drama where the narrative is personalized to each person, for example, or you can have two-way feedback between people. So there's there's nothing um, ready for public viewing yet, but it's certainly kind of informed our creative thinking around that. And, and the whole orchestration project is um, definitely one that's kind of taking this technical concept and exploring what can we do with it. But the underlying um, synchronization technology that's in Orchestrator was also used to create something that was called BBC Together, which we launched. It was created um, after the UK lockdown started and, and was launched through our BBC Taster website. And and that is basically a kind of uh, a watch party idea. So, you know, anything that's on iPlayer or BBC Sounds or the um, maybe the bite-sized website for learning c- can be used uh, to, to people who are remote can watch in sync together using this tool. Um, and so that was that was kind of an immediate response to people being separated from friends and loved ones and wanting to to take part in shared activities together. And it's by no means unique. You know, you can do that with um, various third-party tools for Netflix and YouTube and things. But um, we kind of had these technologies and things that have been developed in, in research projects over many years. And we were able to very quickly bring those together into a, a new uh, feature um, that we could pilot with audiences very quickly. And so that was really pleasing. Um, besides that, that there's nothing, there's not much that I am able to talk about publicly. We've been exploring things obviously, but part of our role in, in, research and development is to provide consultancy to the rest of the organization as well. So, you know, we have orchestras who have been recording from their homes separately um, and radio stations who are trying to get music performances from bands and things. And so we've done sort of a lot of advising on the different tools and techniques that can be used for that, Um, which, uh, yeah, is all really valuable stuff to help us just keep output going and you know keep serving the public watch this space i'm sure some interesting ideas and uh, research publications will come up in the coming as conference or something uh, in spring and summer let's hope so can you give one piece of advice to anybody in our audience that really helped you in your career yeah um i think um i'm wary of, of sounding like i know what i'm doing i think as I've got through life, mostly I've realized that the large majority of people don't really have an idea what, what they're up to. They're just kind of muddling through. Um, whereas when you're younger, you think adults have it all worked out. Um, but perhaps I'd say do what you do, what you find important and interesting. Um, think about that, follow, follow what you think when you think about that. And, um, will lead to interesting and, and satisfying um, work. And, and, and that's, I think, served me well in, in what I've been doing. Um, I think another bit of advice, which might be specific to working in a large organization like the BBC, but um, maybe is more applicable, would be uh, not to be afraid to ask for things to change. So, um when I joined the BBC, there there was a very small team working on audio research. It was one and a half people. And 
um, with a couple of other new joiners, I got together and we, we kind of sat down with the head of the department who um, is now the head of, uh, the, he's the chief technology officer for the BBC. And, and we said, we don't think this is right. Um, you know, audio is so valuable. There's so much you can do. And um, he listened and things grew and, and that's really shaped my career path from there and created opportunities and um, there are other smaller examples but um, yeah so I guess I'd say um, you know don't be afraid to stick your neck out and good things might happen. That's a brilliant piece of advice. Chris it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being on podcast. Likewise thank you very much for having me. Take care. Bye. Before you go we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan and included music by Enobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.